Good morning, everyone. It's amazing, no matter how much I've uh, done Ironman competitions, this thing is one of the hardest things to move around. So, um, Jordan said, just make sure when we move this, we're not talking at the time. So, um, anyway, I do want to uh, make one announcement that I think Jordan forgot this morning, is that we have three days. We have three days until Christmas starts, so let the mass chaos begin. And, and I, I, that's kind of a nervous laughter. I'm sure some of you are thinking, let it begin. We're kind of in the mass chaos right now. And, and we can attest to that because our house is also kind of in the middle of that, uh, that feeling of frantically putting um, the last minute things together and the pieces of our holiday season. Um, so you're definitely not alone. But, you know, Christmas brings this time of, of hectic last days of, of shopping. Um, we're clearing our task list at work and and we're finalizing plans for family gatherings, and, and maybe you're in the middle of a family gathering even right now, but it's an emotional charged time of just this anxious energy, um, and, and maybe even fueled by a small dash or a pinch of caffeine in the process. Anybody know that, that, uh, that feeling? So, um, but Christmas really is just a great time of year. It's an amazing time of year. You know, a lot of our music on the radio is all about Jesus, um, our decorations, our nativity scenes are all about Jesus. Our dinner parties, our conversations are all about Jesus. And many times, uh, people who may not even openly profess to be believers in Christ enjoy the message of a birth of a Savior that we find in our Christmas carols. So it's just this incredible time where we get to um, celebrate the birth of this baby that was born in a manger that would prove to be the Lord and the Savior of our fallen world. But at the same time this morning, we're going to talk about something that's awesome about Christmas also, and that's that Christmas brings the good news of the new covenant. Now, if you have kids in your house like Michelle and I do, or maybe you have kids that you tend to, or grandchildren, or nieces, or nephews, or younger cousins, there's also something else about Christmas that is, uh, has its attention, and that's the gifts that come under the tree. Can anybody attest to that? There's also a focus on that. It's an unfortunate aspect of our culture, and it's something that we can't really escape from easily, but it is something that we try to guard against and we try to moderate with the best that we can. Because kids are so focused on what is the latest gadget or what is the newest electronic or the trendiest toy that's out there. And so we get crazy, or I guess I should say our kids get crazy about what is new and exciting. It's almost like it's embedded in their DNA. They can't help themselves. And so just to keep us adults and us parents and grandparents guessing, it changes every single year. I actually Googled it and I said, what are the 10 bit, uh, most sought after gifts this year? And I'm proud to say that I didn't know any of the 10 because they were completely different. And so it made me kind of reflect on when I was a child. What did I want for Christmas? And I remember this one year, I really wanted a record player. And so I distinctly remember coming to the living room that morning and seeing this little white stereo record player that had two speakers attached to it. And I was just in heaven. And so I listened to music over and over and over again in my room. And my mom is here this morning, so she can probably attest to this. I probably listened to the same song over and over and over again. And so... Years later, I wanted a Sony Walkman. Does anybody remember Sony Walkman? Yeah? Some, some of the kids are like, a Walkman? And some of the adults are like, oh yeah, I had one. And that was what was amazing about this is that 
at the time, that was the latest and greatest technology that was out there. That We didn't have to stay now in one place to listen to our music. We could actually listen to our music on our headphones. Remember those little headphones? You could listen to headphones, and you could take it with you attached to your hip. How incredible was that? It was amazing. It was, it was just such the advancement from the record player. And so now with each subsequent year, something new has always come along. We went from there and, and we had boom boxes. Anybody remember boom boxes? CD players, then multi-disc CD players. Then we could burn our own CDs. Remember that? We didn't have to just have one band. We could listen to anything we wanted to. Then we went to MP3 po- uh, files. And now we have all these devices that just stream music. And so now I, I can think that the, the younger generation has kind of tuned me out now because they're like, I have no idea what you're even talking about. But what's interesting is that while all these different technologies changed, the music that we listened to from those eras has never changed. That always was the same. So if you listen to music from the 1940s, it's still the same music. Or the music from the 60s or the 80s, it's all the same music. So we started with vinyl records. Remember vinyl records? Eight-track tapes. That was short-lived, but I remember eight-track tapes. We had cassette tapes. But what's interesting is while all of those are all but gone, the music is still there. So while the method of listening to the music evolved, the older music that we listen to remains unchanged. It's still there. And so when we turn to the book of Hebrews this morning, we're going to see a very similar type of progression happening in regards to God's covenants and how he laid those out for his people. Because the Bible tells us that, that the Mosaic Covenant, or the law, became obsolete as a result of the new and better covenant, but the, a lot of the fundamental moral commandments remained underneath. So Christmas is a time of, of our Savior. It's a birth of our Savior. But it's really um, more than just that. It's, it's a time that um, Christmas really ushered in this new era of the biblical story. The Old Testament prophecies were beginning to come true, or, or they had been coming true through the time. And so God's great plan was playing out right in front of us. It was right here on earth. Everything was happening. And so not only did Christ, was he born during the Christmas time, but a new covenant was being put in place that would replace the law that was currently governing the Jewish people and their religious practices. And this great covenant, or this new covenant, would be even greater than anything that the world had ever seen. And so this new covenant, it not only rendered the old one obsolete, but it effectively opened itself to Jews and Gentiles alike, so that all people, including us, could equally share in the promises of the Lord and the redemptive plan. So Christmas brings the good news of the new covenant. So now before we dig into our text this morning, I do want to answer one question here, and what is meant by a covenant? See, a covenant, the word itself, it translates right into like testament. So if you think about the New Testament, it's the new covenant, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And so covenant and testament are used interchangeably. So covenant essentially means like a will and testament. It's a set of conditions or stipulations between two parties where one party will lay out a plan for the other party to follow. And so we normally see this when somebody passes away. They have a final will and testament. And there's stipulations on what to do with their assets or maybe um, provisions or restrictions on um, how to deal with their their possessions or what they choose to do with what is remaining. Um, And so in these situations, 
you don't argue with the person that had the covenant. Um, so you either adhere to the way it was laid out, or you can disagree and run the risk of being left out. And that's essentially what we see with God's covenant. And so there's no bargaining with the writer of the covenant. And so in the Old Testament, God would set his old, uh, old te- uh, covenants with his people, and it was a way of establishing a relationship with them. Uh, for example, in the book of Genesis, we saw a covenant made with Moses where he promised he would not flood the earth again. Um, later on, we see covenants with Abraham where he promised to make uh, of him a great nation and to bless the nations from his offspring. And in the book of Exodus, which we're going to look at a little bit closer this morning, we see him make covenants with, with Moses. And there were conditions on how we would atone for our sins. And so he gave specific instructions on ceremonies, animal sacrifices, priestly duties, and he even set up plans for how to build a tent or a tabernacle where all of this stuff would happen, and it was all for the point of appeasing God. And, uh, and so we had to fulfill these covenants that were given to us. The problem was that there was no way of becoming perfect because of these bloody sacrifices. It was hard because people were constantly sinning, and it was cumbersome to bring an animal to an offering um, every time that we did something wrong. We were always trying to live up to these rules and regulations, and a lot of that was placed into our hands. And even in, uh, we look at Deuteronomy 17, we even had stipulations put on what type of sacrifice. Deuteronomy 17 says that we shall not bring a sacrifice to the Lord which has a blemish or any defect whatsoever. So, and, and it says that that is an abomination to the Lord. It actually said that if we brought the wrong sacrifice, it was an abomination to the Lord. So imagine, it's placed in our hands and we do something wrong, and he's saying that that's not good enough. And, and so these were always tough conditions to try to fulfill, and this is what they lived under in the Old Testament. So now this brings us to Hebrews 8 this morning, which we're going to take a closer focus on. And the theme here is really the superiority of Jesus as our great high priest, and who brings a new covenant to this people in rendering the Old Testament or the Old Testament covenant obsolete. So we don't have goats, you know, anymore to sacrifice. Otherwise, this would be a noisy place this morning. We don't have burnt uh, offerings. We don't have cleansing rituals for our priest. But we live on this side of the cross now where Jesus was once and for all. He conquered death and atoned for our sins. And he was the unblemished Lamb of God. And so in the first century... Um, the book of Jews was really written to Jewish converts. These were people that had converted to Christianity, but they were suffering extreme persecution because of it. And so they were basically being tempted to revert back to the old ways of doing things, the old ways of ceremonies and rituals and, and sacrifices. And so the author is telling them that the new is gone. And the new, or the old is gone, the new has come. And so reverting back to these traditions is futile. And so that's what it's written here. And so in Hebrews 7.22, he even says that Jesus is our guarantor of a better covenant. So thinking about that context in the, in the back of your minds, we, we're going to grasp and we're going to look at Hebrews and, and why he placed so much emphasis on Jesus as not only the great high priest, but also what it meant to be under a new covenant. Because what we're going to find is with this new covenant, Anything that happened prior to that is, is obsolete and the new covenant is, 
is superior to that. So what we'll see this morning in Hebrews 8 is he's going to break this down in three sections. The first one is Hebrews 8 through 5, where we find out that Jesus Christ is our great high priest in an even greater tabernacle. So let's turn to Hebrews 8 this morning, and I'm going to start with verses 1 through 5. So if you want to follow along with me. It says, now the point in what we are saying is this. Now I'm going to pause right there. Dramatic pause. I'm going to pause because what he's saying here is now the point is what we are saying is this. And that's really interesting to throw that in there because what we're finding is we're seven chapters into this book. And now all of a sudden the author is saying, okay, now here's the point. So it's almost like we've been reading now for seven chapters and then the author is getting here and he's saying, okay, you've heard all this background information. Now let's focus on what I'm focusing on. Now I want you to hear this. So he says, now the point is what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus is it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth... He, being Jesus, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So as we look at these first five sections, the first thing I want to do is I'm going to go a little bit out of order. I want to focus first on the, on the tent. I want to focus first on the tabernacle because I want to set the physical boundaries of what we're talking about in these first five verses. Because when God gave Moses the instructions to build the tabernacle, he wanted it to be done correctly. He gave very exact and precise, uh, a very uh, exact and precise pattern to how to build this tabernacle. Um, there was a plan that was to be followed. So the tabernacle here is essentially a tent. It's a material tent. It's a physical tent that was erected right there. It was um, basically a series of wooden pillars. It was covered in layers of cloth and animal skins, and it was fastened down by stakes and by cords. It, it served a purpose as basically a portable worship center for the Old Testament Jews. And so if you don't know, I'm going to paint a picture a little bit. It was about 45 feet long. It was about 15 feet wide. So it was three times longer than it was wide. And it was sectioned off into two sections. The first one was the first two-thirds, which was about 30 foot of it. And this was called the holy place. And this was um, the place that housed many of the, the various items that were used in the worship ceremony. Now the last third of it was called the most holy place. And so this was essentially a cube. It was equal dimensions in length, width, and height. And this is where the Ark of the Covenant was placed. So this was the tabernacle that was constructed by man. And so once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest at that time was allowed to enter the most holy place. And this is where God would descend in a cloud to spend time with his people. But yet he stayed in the most holy place and the high priest was the only one that was able to enter there. Um, and so what would happen uh, throughout this, this day of atonement, there was different cleansing rituals that the priest had to go to because he was a sinful man. 
Then there was animal sacrifices that were done for the sins of the people. And then the high priest would gather the blood from the sacrifices and he would enter the most holy place and he would take that blood and he would sprinkle it on the top of the Ark of the Covenant or on top of the mercy seat is what this was called. Because without the sacrificial blood of the animal, there was no atonement for our sin. And so everything that happened happened inside of this tabernacle. And it was out of the sight and out of um, uh, relations with the people. The people were outside of this, and the high priest was in this most holy place on his own. And, and so it was completely shielded from the outside. Uh, not only was the holy place, the external two-thirds, covered with a curtain, but the most holy place was shielded by a veil that was, hang, that was hung on four golden pillars that, was pre- that prevented anybody from entering except for the high priest, and it prevented anybody from seeing inside. So now after the priest was finished with his work, he would come out of the most holy place and another goat was brought to him. Does anybody know what this goat was named? Scapegoat, right? Has anybody heard that term, scapegoat? So now we've had all these sacrifices and and we've, we've murdered all these people. We've taken all their blood. We've sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. Now we bring another goat to the priest and this one was to be saved. This one was to live. But what the priest would do is when this goat was brought to him, he would grab it by the head. How many farmers are in here? Can you imagine grabbing a goat by the head and holding on to it? Stunned silence. No farmers. Okay, trust me on this one then. So he would grab the goat by the head and he would pray over this goat, over this second goat, and he would be confessing all the sins for the people. He would confess for their greed and their selfishness, their covetousness, pride, anger, lust, everything. They would go on and on, and the people would be able to witness this. And so what he was effectively doing was he was transferring the sins of the people onto this goat. So as he was standing there and he was praying, holding on to this, I can imagine all the people are sitting there watching all this. And so as he hits something and he says, I want to pray for the greed of the people. And someone over here is going, yep, that, that's my sin right there. I, I'm, I'm grateful. He just said it. And then he's going to say, I'm going to pray for the lust of the people. And somebody else says, oh, yep, he prayed for my sin. And so he's going through these lists of sins because he's transferring that sin onto the scapegoat. So once he was all done, this goat would effectively um, bear the sins of the people. He would take all of that on top of him. And so now someone would lead the goat out into the wilderness, and they would watch this goat go away, which was like their sins going away, and they would leave the goat, and he would just wander through the wilderness, never to be seen again. And so you can see that this was a very precise ceremony that would happen, and it was laid out by God. These are his rules. And so this was the the obedience that they had to maintain a very uh, strict adherence to because this was the law of Moses. So now we come back to Hebrews 8. And now we have an author who's contrasting this Old Testament law. And he's starting by saying that Jesus is our high priest. You know, he's the perfect high priest that's not bound by all these rituals and ceremonies and all of these actions. And what's interesting is right away he says, we have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. And so this verb, seated, is extremely significant. It seems very minor, seated. It seems very minor, but it's very significant because the one thing that was never in the tabernacle was a chair. Because like I said, there was always sins to be atoned for. And you had all these people and there was all these sacrifices. So there was no time 
for a priest ever to sit down. He was so busy making amends for the people that he, he never had time. You, you know, he, he never did any of his duties while he was seated. He was always on his feet doing something. But this says that Jesus was seated. And, and so what we see here is that Jesus, our high priest, is atoned for our sins once and for all. And his work is done. And he's sitting now in the heavenly realm at the right hand of God. Because his job was not to offer gifts and animal sacrifices for his people. He himself is the sacrifice for sins. He offered himself as the blood of the lamb as a sacrifice. He shed his blood himself. He carried our sins himself. And so now he's triumphantly seated in the presence of God because his job is done. And it says here that Jesus is in the true tent, a true tabernacle. Because the human priests, like I said, they served in a sanctuary that was built by, on earth by man. Jesus, as the high priest, is seated in the heavenly sanctuary that is built by God. And I really love this verse in verse 5, where it says that all of this was only a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. All of these things, the tabernacle, the ceremonies, the sacrifices, all of this was merely a shadow of the cross where the ultimate sacrifice for God's people was made. And so now don't think, as I talk about this, that the tabernacle was false or that it was flawed because it was built based on instructions from God. But now we have a new high priest that is ministering in the true tent, the true tabernacle, that the, the one that the Lord has built, not man. And we see this, and Paul writes in, in the book of Colossians when the Old Testament or the old traditions and customs were being called into questions. He writes in Colossians 2:17, his response is, "These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to." To Christ. And so we see this constant theme that all these things that happened in the Old Testament were merely a shadow of what was to come. That the cross, that they were merely a shadow of, of the cross. And if you were here last week, you may have saw the um, or, or heard the example that Jordan used as he started his, his sermon. He was talking about reading through the catalog and seeing all the pictures and picking out what he wanted for gifts. And then when he actually got the gift, for some reason, the reality of it wasn't it was better than what the shadow was, you know, and, and I read that and I was thinking first he took my example, which is fine, but, um, but that's what it was, is that these things were merely a shadow. So the Old Testament laws were basically pointing to the coming of something that was even greater. It's a greater covenant and an even greater tabernacle than what they saw in the Old Testament. So Jesus did not enter a man-made tabernacle that was made with earthly materials that was flawed and broken down and, and was only a copy and a shadow of these things. Jesus entered the heavenly reality with God, tearing the veil. Remember I said there was a veil that covered the most holy place and only the high priest could enter into here and so he was the only one that interacted with God as a sacrifice. Now Jesus has torn that veil wide open opening the most holy place to every single one of us. And so now we have access um, to him as well 
through Jesus. And so if we go on a little bit further in, in Hebrews, Hebrews 9, he, he even talks about this again. 9.24, For Christ has entered not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of these true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So now we have a true high priest, and, and Christ's duties, his priestly duties, are supreme to anything that we saw in the Old Testament with the priest. Where here, a sinful man in a priest represented another sinful man. But now we have Christ as our high priest in the great sanctuary, and he has atoned for the sins of his people. He did what no earthly priest could ever do. And so this free gift that we've received is not according to the Mosaic law. It was the sacrifice of a man who knew no sin, and he humbly sent himself to a horrific death on the cross. So for us to possess the benefits of this perfect sacrifice administered by the perfect high priest in the sanctuary built by God, not man, comes down to only the sovereign grace and mercy of our Lord. This is no shadow. This is the good news of the new covenant. Second, Hebrews 6, uh, 8, 6 through 12. We are under a better covenant with better promises. So turning back to Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 6, it says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into the minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So the first part of Hebrews 8 discusses this, uh, this contrast between Jesus and the high priests of the Old Testament. But the main emphasis of chapter 8 is really the old covenant that is fading away and the new covenant that is coming through Jesus. And so what we see in verse 6 is this transition from Christ's superior priesthood over the law to the new covenants and how they're better than the old. And to further expand on this point, if you notice in there, he's actually pointing back to the Old Testament. He's pointing back to this quote from the prophet of Jeremiah, from chapter 31, which actually, if you don't know this, is the longest Old Testament quote inside of the New Testament. So he's actually proving 
that Jesus and this new testament or this new covenant is even better, and he's pointing to the old testament and, and to prove it. And so I don't want to stand here and, and chastise the Mosaic law as being wrong, because at that time it was directed and it was designed by God. But and so God did not produce something that was faulty from the beginning. And, um, and because in his extreme wisdom, he didn't design something and then say, well, this is not good. And so I'm flipping the, the statement from Genesis 1 where he created everything and he said, it is good, it is good. And now he creates the Mosaic Law and he says, oh, this isn't good. That's not how it happened. What, he, he's got something that he designed. And so in his infinite wisdom, um, we have to take that this design was good. But then in verse 8, it does say he finds fault with them. So who's them? God finds fault not in the covenant. He finds fault in the people. For they did not hold up to their end of the covenant that he laid out. And if you know anything about the Old Testament or you read through the Old Testament, it, it would seem or appear that Moses saw this coming. You know, he's always instructing his people to love the Lord with all their heart, with all their soul, and all their might in Deuteronomy 6. And yet he's warning them of the result of their disobedience in Deuteronomy 29. And still they're constantly falling away from the Lord and, and failing to adhere to the covenant in front of them. And so in Romans... Paul even addressed this as he wrote his letter. Romans 7, he says, uh, uh, starting in verse 12, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. So Paul's even saying right here, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. And then he asks this question, Did that which is good then bring death to me? He's asking the people this exact question. If it's good, does it bring death to me then? By no means. What brought death? Sin. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. It wasn't the law that was bad. It wasn't the law that was sinful. It wasn't the law that was faulty. It was human nature that was sinful. The fault lies in sin, not in the law that the Lord created. And Paul goes on in Romans 8 to, to discuss this as well. Um, oops, i got to find my reference, sorry. Uh, Romans 8, 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. Right there it says, God did what the law that was weakened by flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. This is the good news of the new covenant. So did God make a mistake when he established the old covenant? Of course not, because God's word is true. It's without error. Fault is not found in God or in his covenant. It was in the sin of God's covenant partners. And so as a result, this covenant was not able to bring the people into the design relationship that he had set. And so God's desire was to walk hand in hand with his people. It says right in the verse, when he escorted them out by the hand out of Egypt, but when they decided to follow or the people decided to follow their own path and ignore his commands, it says right there in verse 9 in Hebrews 8 that he showed no concern for them. 
so that God gives us this promise of this new covenant that as people would know it, um, that did not come upon their actions. It does not come upon our actions. It does not come upon how we do a ceremony or how we choose a sacrifice. This comes only through the sovereign, free um, gift of grace that we're given. So scripture tells us that we have a greater high priest and we are under a better covenant and it's enacted or it's made of better promises. So if you see this and you look in starting in verse 10 through 12, God says five times, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Using these words, I will, God is telling us that he is signifying that this new covenant not only does it originate with him alone, but he is going to ensure the fulfillment in the lives of his people. He is the one who sent his son. He is the one who elects us. He is the one who does the work for us. He will ensure the fulfillment of the new covenant in our lives. So what are these better promises? We see him starting right there in uh, Verse 10, as a quote from Jeremiah, he's pulling it straight from Jeremiah. First of all, we see an inward transformation. It says, verse 10, I will put my law, laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. See, the problem with the old covenant, it was, it was written on stone tablets that were external to the body. There was no internal power to live them out. Now God is promising to write those laws not on something that is a stone tablet, and we have it here in the Bible, but we have them inside in our own hearts. And so we turn to the prophet Ezekiel as he spoke, or as he wrote the, the words of the Lord, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So how amazing is this? That when we are born again and we are adopted into God's family, that his laws and his commands are placed internally inside of us. We experience this spiritual transformation. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us and we seek from our core, to engage the Lord and to please Him. We now have God's words are permeating in our inner beings. And we've had the spiritual heart transformation that brings a love for God straight from our core. It's amazing. Second part of verse 10, and the second promise that we have, a personal relationship with Him. It says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. The new covenant establishes an intimate connection and relationship between us and our Father in heaven. He promises to be our God, and in turn, he's promising to hold us tight as his children. It's a promise of a relationship that not only does it span the test of time, but remember in the old covenant where they were always bringing sacrifices to the Lord to to atone for sins and, and to come to him, this is now a relationship that remains unchanged despite the flaws and the sins 
that we have. When we place our faith in Jesus, we are brought into this deep, intimate relationship with him. Third promise, verse 11. For they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. I I like that, least of them to the greatest, is because the high priest were the ones that had the knowledge and they were the ones that went to the Lord. And so we had the sinful man that was there, but now we know that the least to the greatest has that knowledge of him. And this is a personal knowledge that results from the personal relationship that we have with him. And this is not an intellectual knowledge. This is an intimate, personal knowledge of who he is. And this can only come from a deep union that we have with God. And I look at it this way. People may know who my wife is. They may know her name. They may know some things about her, where she lives, what she looks like. But I have a deep, intimate, personal knowledge of her that exceeds what anybody in this room can have. That's what we're talking about. When we become members of God's family, we know more than just facts about him. We have a personal and a relational knowledge of him. And that even the most infant person or novice in their faith can know God. This isn't about how smart we are. This is about having a personal relationship and knowledge because we don't need anybody to intercede on our behalf anymore because we have Jesus who is our mediator. Last promise in verse 12, forgiveness. It says, I will be merciful towards their iniquities. Forgiveness of our sins is one of the most important aspects or maybe even the most important aspect of the new covenant. His promise of forgiveness can be experienced through his grace and mercy And this was accomplished by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. It was at Calvary where Jesus bore our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He was a lamb that was led to the slaughter. This was all for our forgiveness of our sins. And Calvary is our guarantee of a covenant promise of eternity with God in heaven. See, the sacrifices of the Old Testament, they did not satisfy the Lord. He accepted them, but he knew that something better was coming. And so with Christ, the job is now complete. It's finished once and for all. The sacrificial lamb has offered himself for not only the animal sacrifices of the blood, but he also takes our sins and our guilt away from us. And it is finished, and he is seated in heaven. But there's something that's even better on this, is that the second part of verse 12 says, and I will remember their, this, their sins no more. Is it not enough that we are forgiven that God remembers our sins no more? And it's not that God's forgetful. He's an all-knowing Lord. He knows everything that happens. He is perfect and he, is, um, he, he knows everything about us. But it's saying that he's not going to bring those sins up against us 
anymore. He knows the seriousness of who we are. He knows the seriousness of our sinful nature. He knows the seriousness of the sins in the fallen world. And yet he's saying, I will hold it against you and not remember those. Just let that soak in for a little bit. It's truly amazing. So when the weight of our past is, is pushing you down, or when we're beating ourselves up over things that we've done, or when the shackles and the restraints of our previous actions are holding us back from sharing our testimony or telling people about the gospel message, when we feel the pain of the past, remember, when we repent of our sins, we have a glorious Father in heaven through the blessing of a new covenant that is remembering our sins no more. Truly amazing. The, this covenant that we're under and the better promises that it's made on, this is the good news of the new covenant. So third, the new covenant in verse 13. The new covenant makes the old obsolete. It says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and was becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so the very fact that the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah promised and discussed that this new covenant was coming, it recognizes the temporary nature of the Mosaic law even back then. God never attended for the Old Covenant to be a permanent solution to sin. And yet many of the same fundamental aspects of the Old, Custom, uh, the old Covenant still exist. And I can give you a big for example. Jesus did not discredit God's command to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and might that we discuss in Deuteronomy. He didn't discredit that, but what he did was he expanded upon it in his teachings. You think about the Ten Commandments. When Jesus came, he didn't say that the Ten Commandments were not there anymore. You can do all those things freely. What he did was in the Sermon on the Mount, he expanded upon those. So God's moral law which set the basis and the standards of our righteousness, still remained unchanged. But rather than them being written on uh, on, uh, stone tablets, they're now written on our hearts and inside of us. And the Apostle Paul addressed this transition when he looked at, or when he wrote um, the letter to the Galatians, or letter of Galatians. Galatians 3, uh, starting in verse 24. He writes, So then... The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So the word guardian here is is a Greek word. It means a person whose job was to watch over a young boy. This guardian would supervise their conduct And they would make sure that they got to and from school with no problems. And so when a child grew up, he no longer needed a guardian anymore. And so Paul is using this example of a way explaining the progression of the covenant um, from people or from the nation, from childhood to adulthood. The old covenant was over the people in their childhood, whereas the new covenant is over them or the nation in adulthood. And so in adulthood, guardians are no longer needed. They have become obsolete. And so now it's not that the guardian's influence no longer existed. The impact and the lessons are still evident, but they did not have the same governing authority 
that they had in the past. So what Paul is saying here when he's talking about the guardian or referring to it as the law is that it had a function at that particular time in history of God's redemptive plan. And so I think about this and how do I apply this to my own life? I, I think about my own relationship with my, my earthly father. My father has passed away almost four years ago. And while he's no longer here on earth and he's not governing over me anymore, he still has had a huge impact on my life. So if you spend any time with me, you'll hear me often say, well, my dad used to always say, and then I will inject some tidbit or piece of advice that he offered when I was growing up. And so now that I'm an adult, and I originally wrote this and said now that I'm a mature adult, but mature was subject. So now that I'm an adult and he's passed away, his influence and his personal and moral and ethical lessons still exist inside of me, even though he's not a governing authority over me anymore. And so God's plan from the beginning was to implement all of his covenants at the appropriate time. And so God did not make a mistake with the old covenants, nor did he have to resort to a plan B after the first one seemed to have failed. Each covenant served a purpose according to God's perfect plan for his people. But yet now on this side of the cross, we get to live under the new covenant. God's covenants essentially converge at the cross. The old prepared the way for a savior. And under the new covenant, we go directly to God through Christ. So we no longer live under the law, but under the sovereign grace of Jesus Christ who's our great high priest. So we're going to finalize real quick with Romans 6.14 that tells us, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So this Christmas season, let's remember Jesus Christ, the great high priest of a better covenant that holds the promises of eternity with God. Because Christmas brings the good news of the new covenant. Amen. Let us pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. And we just thank you for the Christmas season as families are gathering and um, people are coming together. And, and we have fellowship of, of your people, Lord, that we have a birth of a Savior, which is just incredible, Lord, that he is Emmanuel, God with us, Lord. And and we thank you for that. But also, we think about this new covenant that we're under, that you've made these promises to us, Lord, and, and that we get to come directly to you, that you have given us forgiveness um, of our sins through a personal and a knowledgeable uh, relationship with you. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for this time, Lord. We thank you for your word that we got to discuss, Lord. And, and we just want to say we love you. Um, we worship you and we're here to glorify you. In the Lord's name, amen.